0: So, hi, Marva. Sabrina, (laughs) I have to do the introduction. Oh, okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Hi. Welcome to Sisteria Untold. We're your sisters and hosts, Marva. And Sabrina. And in this podcast, we look at history through the
1: eyes of sisterhood. All right. Now I'll say hi. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Sabrina. Hi. I saw a full rainbow today. I know. I saw your picture. You did not reply.
0: I also saw a rainbow. Not a full rainbow, but a rainbow. I also went to get that tea today. I went Mm. all the way to Kensington, got there, and it was closed on Mondays.
1: Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Ah, struggles. Yeah, I feel like I have to do everything there is to do in the world before Thursday. Yeah, I
0: literally last night, like, made a list. I was like go here, buy these things. I'm, like, booked out solid, like, Monday to Wednesday until, like, Wednesday at 9 p.m. Oh, my God.
1: So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, hopefully it'll only be a month.
0: It we'll for sure will not. And I I'm know. very
1: upset and very I distressed.
0: I was trying to think of a word of what I was feeling, and I was, like, dismayed. But then I was, like, I don't really remember what that means. But it sounds right.
1: That does sound right. I don't know what it is to be made, but to be dismade yeah. <laughs> sounds right.
0: <laughs> yes, I am dis something. Dis
1: satisfied. Disheartened. Anyways, Anyways.
0: let's okay. talk about destroying the government.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we could bring back anarchism and then just do whatever we want. Just kidding. That's as we'll get into. Yeah. That's not really exactly what anarchism is. Anyway, Also,
0: if anybody listening wants to destroy the
1: government, please don't, because that will just make us be on lockdown longer. Yeah, honestly. Unless you're going to replace it with a government that knows how to manage this better, like, Taiwan or (laughs) New Zealand's government, just, like, move them here. I'm okay with that. (laughs) But, yeah. Anyways, um, not to get political, let's talk about (laughs) politics for an hour. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um... I'm actually really excited for you to experience this episode (laughs) because it was just such a rollercoaster. And, yeah, I don't know how you do your episodes, but I basically, like, research as I'm writing them. And then so, like, I'm writing something down and I'm, like, shocked by it. (laughs) And I'm just (laughs) like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. But so today – We'll be talking about Emma Goldman and Voltarine De DeClaire. Voltaire? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, if you've never heard of them, don't feel bad because I hadn't heard of them in my life ever until last year, early this year, one of my students who was a junior in high school at the time was interested in them and I was just like, she was way smarter than me. Anyways, I was like, I have no (laughs) place being in a situation of authority as a position of authority over you. But she was really interested in them and like the anarcho-feminist movement, um, Mm -hmm. which I also never heard of. So I started like looking into them and I just decided right away I wanted to do an episode about this movement. Um, I think Mm -hmm. even back in June when we like started the podcast. So that's that's how we've ended up here. Um, okay. Yeah. And so before researching for this podcast, like I kind of said earlier, I thought anarchy was like a really bad thing of people just running around and like destroying things and doing whatever they want, um, mm-hmm. which is definitely like one side of it. Um, but there's another definition that I think it just makes a lot of sense. And it comes from this podcast called The X worker which is a podcast of anarchist ideas and action, and so this okay. sounds so intense. <laughs> well, I'm about to give you an, ex- an explanation. <laughs> um, I know the word. Just actually, Voltairene said this in her life, like that she doesn't she doesn't expect to convince people to become anarchists, but she wants them to get used to the word and not be like afraid of it. And I Mm -hmm. think, like, unfortunately, no anarchist has been successful at at that because, like, it does still have such a negative connotation. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, but let me just read this kind of long quote about what anarchism is. And maybe you'll be more on board with it. Um, You don't have to be on board with it. I don't expect us to suddenly become, like, full-fledged anarchists. But anyways. So they say that. Historically, anarchists have promoted equality, but not in the sense of equal integration into oppressive systems along a particular axis, like gender or sexual orientation. Anarchists' notions of equality have focused on the challenge to all forms of hierarchy. Meaningful equality entails a comprehensive attack on every system of oppression that prevents us from flourishing to our full potential. So, equality for any of us would require, at bare minimum, the destruction of capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and state control. So, that's the kind of definition of anarchism in general. Um, And the definition of anarcho-feminism that I'm going to share comes from this website called Solidarity. Which, it's spelled like Sally, like the name Sally. So at first I was like, oh, who's Sally <laughs> I thought it was salad.
0: Oh, no. <laughs>
1: okay. No, yeah, it's like Sally space Darity. And it's just like, yeah, mm-hmm. like a pun on like solidarity. Um, but is the pun because Sally's
0: a girl's name?
1: Yeah, I think it's just like a, you know, feminist pun on solidarity. Because mm-hmm. it's a anarcho-feminism and gender anarchy website. Um, mm-hmm. So
0: unnecessary to have that pun
1: but okay <laughs> i don't know it's just like a clever name the so history is an what? unnecessary pun i guess on sister in history no it's not it's a brand yeah so is sally darity
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay we'll argue about this later yeah this is not interesting <laughs> okay so sally darity defines anarcho-feminism as quote Being against all oppression, domination, and authority, but focusing on gender oppression, not because it's most important, but because it affects so many of us and must be dealt with. I say gender oppression instead of patriarchy or sexism because I think feminism needs to be broader than just women's issues. Gender oppression includes patriarchy, sexism, homophobia, heterosexism, heteronormativity, transphobia, the gender b- binary, fat phobia, and other body image issues, sexual violence, et cetera. So that's basically what anarcho-feminism is. So it basically takes anarchism, combines it with feminism, and just makes like a more focused version of anarchism. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the hosts on X worker um, talk about how Anarchism should always include feminism, but the female host of that podcast was like sometimes in anarchist circles, like the men are really sexist. So that's why we still need to have anarcho-feminism as its own thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And anarcho-feminists believe that the struggle against the patriarchy is an essential part of class conflict and the anarchist struggle against the state and capitalism. So they think you can't have just like one without the other. Okay, any questions on anarchism, feminism, or anarcho-feminism? <laughs> um, probably, but we'll have to, <laughs> I'll have to think about it. Okay, we'll see it in play in, in the women's lives we're talking about, so hopefully that will help make it make more sense. Okay. Um, so, Voltairine we'll Claire is a little bit outshined by Emma um, in terms of her legacy, so in the spirit of history untold. We're going to talk Mm -hmm. about Voltarine first. She was also born first, so it makes it easier. Um, Okay. (laughs) So on October – not October. I just made that up. It doesn't even say October on the page. (laughs) On November seventeenth, 1866, Harriet Elizabeth Billings gave birth to her third and final daughter, who she named Voltarine. Harriet came from an abolitionist family in upstate New York. And her husband, Hector de Clare, was a French tailor who became a citizen through fighting in the Civil War. And it was Voltaire's father's idea to name her after one of his favorite philosophers, Voltaire. And at the time that Voltrain was born, her family was struggling with poverty, and they were living in Leslie, Michigan. But after one of her siblings tragically died in a creek, the family um, moved to St. John's, Michigan. And then Volterine's sister, Addie, wrote about their experience living in poverty in a time before welfare. And she wrote that, quote, to be aided by any kind of charity was a disgrace and not to be thought of. So we were all underfed and bodily weak. So although their parents struggled to feed their children, it seems like there was no shortage of money for books, at least in the Declare household. And Volterine and Addie were avid readers, and Volterine also enjoyed writing. And I think this is cute that when she was little, she created a desk by placing a board of wood on the limb of a tree so she could have a private place to write. And that's where she drafted her first poem at the age of six. That is cute. Yeah. Um, And I won't bore you guys again with a discussion of A Room of One's Own and, like, the need for a woman to have her own space to write. You guys can listen to our episode about Sor Juana and Santa Teresa if you want to learn (laughs) about that. But you guys, if you listen to this whole season, you'll see this kind of pattern of women having their own space and then having a bigger impact on the world because they had time to think and write. Um, But yeah, so Bolterine's father wanted his children to have a proper education so he sent Volterine to a Catholic convent school in 1880 in Ontario, Canada. And I just – I don't really understand their financial situation or if it changed or something or if Addie was just being dramatic because mm-hmm. it seems like to send your daughter to a different country to go to school is like kind of elite. <laughs> but – Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So at the age of 14, Volterine was already very clearly a rebel – And she ran away from the convent after just a few weeks of being there. She took a boat to Port Huron and then tried... Oh,
0: dang. She ran, like, a way away. Yeah.
1: And then she tried to walk to St. John's, where her family lived, on foot, which is 111 miles. But, obviously, after 17 miles, which is still really far, she -hmm. realized that she would never make it. And she walked back to Port Huron and found some family friends to stay with. They gave her some food and then called for her father, who um, came and took her back to the convent. But yeah, she definitely (laughs) was out there. Um, Then, at the convent where she stayed for three years in total, Volturine developed a strong aversion to the kind of dogmatic thinking and forced obedience that they were taught there. And she said that going to that school left, quote, white scars on her soul and drew her will toward the knowledge and assertion of its own liberty. So it just had the reverse effect of trying to make her like a good little Christian girl. She was like, let me be free in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And after graduation, she moved around a little bit. She went back to St. John's to live with her family, and then moved in with her aunt in Greenville, and then finally moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And that's where Volturine first started sharing her thoughts with the world and she became the editor of a free thought newspaper called the progressive age. And the free thought movement was something that kind of brought together people from like different ends of the religious spectrum, but it was just like kind of a idea that you shouldn't have to base your thoughts off of other people's thoughts. Like everyone should have like original thoughts. Um, and so working here, she started further developing her anti-clerical thoughts that had started in high school. And she also began lecturing on free thought and was starting to see herself as a free thinker. But the truly defining moment in her like political ideology development was this event called the Haymarket Riots. Basically, what had happened was on May 3rd, 1886, Some Chicago police officers shot and killed several men who were striking. And then in response, a group of anarchists met near Haymarket Square the next night. And then the police came and tried to disperse them. And someone threw a bomb and seven officers were killed. And then, Mm -hmm. yeah, eight anarchists were arrested. But six of them weren't even there when the incident happened. And then they had like a trial And four of them were hanged, one of them died by suicide, and then the three others were pardoned, like, several years later. Um, And basically, um, Voltairine heard about this, and that's, like, about the trial, kind of, and them being, like, put to death for having these ideas, Mm -hmm. even though they weren't, like, actually implicated in, like, the killings of the police officers. And that's when her anarchist viewpoints were really solidified. Um, And then so that the like trial and executions happened in November. And then not long after that, Voltarine had a debate with an anarchist and she lost. And then from that point onward, she considered herself an anarchist. And so um, Voltarine's work in the free thought movement took her from Michigan to Ohio to Boston to Chicago to Philadelphia. And she lectured in a bunch of these cities all while struggling with her own physical health and with poverty. So this is going to be a recurring issue is that she suffered from Qatar. I don't know like how to say that, but it's a sinus related mm-hmm. problem that would sometimes leave her weak and bedridden and like cause a pounding in her ears. So it was like really mm-hmm. bad kind of sinus disease. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, In 1889, Voltrain settled down in Philadelphia, and in 1890, she gave birth to her only child, Harry, who was fathered by another freethinker, James B. Elliot, and she never really had any interest in being a wife or a mother, so she and James agreed that her son would live with him, with a father. Oh, dang. Yeah, and Voltrain played no role in in Harry's upbringing. Wow. Yeah. Definitely not the norm, (laughs) especially in, like, a Victorian kind of world. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1892, now having really set down her roots in Pennsylvania, Voltairine founded a social group called the Ladies' Liberal League, and she said the group's purpose was not, quote, to smile men into ticket buying and shame them into candy purchase, but to host discussions on sex, prohibition, socialism, anarchism, and revolution. And I'm like, um, Thank. you
0: know, you know how you're talking about she's like going around doing these like lectures and stuff?
1: Mm-hmm. Is she getting paid for this? So I don't know how the paying works because she is always like struggling with money and she mm-hmm. like teaches English, like tutors students, but um mm-hmm. to like live. But And she publishes a lot of stuff, but I don't know, like, how much mm-hmm. she's getting paid. Um, it must mm-hmm. be enough for her to, like, take trains and stay in hotels and stuff, but uh-huh. she's not, like, wealthy by any means. Mm-hmm. And also, like, anarchists, they're not really about, like, wealth. So it would be kind of, like, like hypocritical if she was, like, making loads of money. Mm, I see. Yeah. During this period of her life, Voltarene fell in love with what Emma Goldman, her other sister calls Voltarine's teacher, confidant, and comrade, Dreyer Lum. He was a fellow anarchist, and he was 27 years her senior, but he was really the first man to treat Voltarine as an intellectual equal. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, he died by suicide in 1893, which left Voltarine heartbroken. And that's, like, the major love of her life. Like, there's not really anyone else people, like, talk about in terms Mm -hmm. of her love. So to support herself in Philadelphia, like I said, she earned a small income by teaching English, and she did this in the Jewish immigrant community, where she set down really deep emotional roots and learned Yiddish well enough to read the Yiddish anarchist papers and translate some articles into English. Oh, dang. Yeah, really cool. Um, And her friend George Brown said that she would often teach from 7 in the morning until 11 o'clock at night. And during all of this, she would also spend time writing, translating, editing, organizing, and speaking as part of her work as an anarchist activist. So she was super, super busy all the time. Mm-hmm. And in 1894, an English anarchist named Charles Wilfred Mowbray arrived in the U.S. on a lecture tour. And in December, Voltaire welcomed him as a guest speaker to the Ladies' Liberal League, and at the end of this lecture, he was suddenly arrested by detectives and charged with inciting riot. That, and, hmm Like, meaning that L- Women's Liberal League was a riot or some previous riot? um, Like, that he, by speaking about, like, anarchism, was inciting riot. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Vulturine and George Brown, her um, friend I just mentioned, quickly organized a defense fund for Charles and... They were able to get him released. And then Charles went on to found an anarchist journal called The Rebel with another British man. And Voltairine became a regular contributor. And her friendships with these British anarchists, along with a lifelong dream to travel abroad, and a current concern that sh- her declining health would mean, like, she doesn't have that much time to live to fulfill that dream. Mm-hmm. Like, she ended up deciding to go to England. So, on June 13th, 1897, she sailed to England, and she wrote about the, quote, terrible food, the awful beds, and the disagreeable (laughs) chattering of a lot of company. Um,
0: Well, well, well.
1: Yeah, she was not a big fan. (laughs) Um, The
0: food, she may have a point. (laughs) But
1: <laughs> No, not in England, on the boat, sorry Oh, okay yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought she meant the food in England was bad And I was like, well, she
0: obviously hasn't had Prime Minister <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, No, yeah, this was sailing there So that kind of shows, like, even though she was able to have enough money to sail to England She wasn't, like, having, like, the best food or rooms or anything Because <laughs> it was really uncomfortable yeah. um, But I was surprised by how quickly she got there um, she arrived in Liverpool on June 19th, so only six days um, journey by boat, by ship, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah.
0: That is fast. Yeah. But I guess
1: they must have, like, steamships by mm-hmm. now. Then. Yeah. So a few days after she arrived, she made her way to London, which is where she stayed for the majority of her four months in Great Britain. And she took advantage of all England had to offer, and she saw shows and visited Westminster Abbey, And went to Stonehenge. And she wrote to her mother at Stonehenge being like, this is so beautiful. I love it so much. Um, And she visited the graves of some famous writers. Um, But she wasn't just there for tourism. (laughs) Um, And things got more serious when dozens of refugees from Spain who were anarchists who'd been put in jail without a trial. And then basically tortured and then forced to leave the country as soon as they were released. They arrived in England, and they kind of came in, um, came in the communication with the anarchists who were based there. And so, well, spoke in front of a crowd of 10,000 people at Trafalgar Square, yeah, about the atrocities that the Spaniards had endured, and she would also attend small gatherings in private homes. And at these gatherings, it's kind of gruesome, they would, like, show their wounds that they had gotten, like, while they were being tortured, Um, Mm -hmm. and it was, like, really sad. Um, Also, while in London, Voltairine met a group of French anarchists, and she ended up going to Paris for a week in August. And here she took a pilgrimage to Père Lachaise Cemetery, where 147 French political activists had been massacred. And there she collected fallen leaves and sent them to her mother. She was, like, very attached to nature um, Mm -hmm. wherever she went.
0: This is, is, like, so weird because I feel like I've never even met an anarchist (laughs) before. And this girl, like, in the 1800s comes to England and then is just like, oh, here, look, all these international anarchists. Like, how do you even know?
1: Well, I think, like, that, like all the anarchists know each other, like, we'll see in Mm -hmm. Emma's life, too, like, she knows a lot of the people who Voltaire knows, and it's just, like, you go somewhere, she's, like, also, she's staying with fellow anarchists everywhere she goes, like, Mm -hmm. she's not staying in hotels, she's staying with friends and friends of friends, um, Mm -hmm. so that kind of is how she, like, meets people.
0: Yeah, but I guess it's just, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think if I have any group of people that I like, It'd be like, oh, if I went somewhere, then I would just be like, oh, this is our little community. Of I know. I always so, want to so, be like so, that. So,
1: so. Yeah. <laughs> but but I'm not. <laughs> I don't have a community. <laughs> but I'm lonely. So. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, also, to be fair, this is like a pretty small, like, insular group of people. And they all think the same things. Like, they all have something mm-hmm. really big in common. And they're not just mm-hmm. casual anarchists. Like, it's their life's work, too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So after leaving France, Voltarine set out on a month-long visit to Scotland, which she absolutely loved, and she said she wished she could live there forever. And here, she lectured in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Paisley, and Dundee. Then in September, she returned to England, and then finally sailed back to America in October. And her biographer, Paul Average, writes of this time in her life as being, quote, a refreshing interlude as well as an important time for her development as an anarchist because she was meeting French, Spanish, Russian, and British anarchists who all broadened her view. And when she mm-hmm. returned, she maintained these ties by writing an American section for a British newspaper and translating a French anarchist book. So apparently she learned French in the meantime, <laughs> too. Yeah, I um, was
0: saying, dang, this girl knows every language.
1: No, yeah, she learns a lot of languages. Um <laughs> Yeah, but it's no surprise then that by 1902, the New York Tribune reported that Vultureen's, quote, writings are said to be known to anarchists all over the world. So she was very well renowned. Mm-hmm. Um, but you may ask, what exactly was she writing and saying that manner is so famous? So yeah. <laughs> she wrote a whole host of poems, like I said, ever since she was six, she was writing poetry And she also wrote stories, and I'll share some of these all on our Instagram. But what I want to focus on are her lectures. So she lectured on sex slavery, which she – that includes, like, what we think of when we think sex slavery, like, trafficking of Mm -hmm. people for prostitution. But um, mainly she was focused on condemning ideals of beauty that encourage women to distort their bodies – um, as well as, like, the creation of unnatural gender roles for children, which, to me, sounds really ahead of its time. Um, but that's But she- I don't really... Hmm. I don't really understand how
0: is the, like, changing your appearance sex slavery.
1: Like, this is just all included in her essay on sex... Her lecture on oh. sex slavery. It's just, like... Oh, okay, so these are just, like, other topics. Yeah, it's not... That's what I'm saying. She includes the thing that we think about, like, human trafficking... But it's not okay. just about that. It's mostly about, like, just general societal, like, um, like misuse of women.
0: Okay, I see.
1: Um, and she also talks about, like, marriage laws that allow men to rape their wives without any punishment or consequence, which mm-hmm. is, like, a really big problem at the time. Um, yeah. And she said that, quote, every married woman is a bonded slave who takes her master's name, her master's breed... Her master's commands and serves her master's passions. So obviously that's really extreme, and that's not true yeah. every marriage ever. <laughs>
0: Very intense.
1: Yeah, but just and a little bit of a misunderstanding of slavery,
0: but okay. I know,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, she's just like this is a kind of like a foundational text for anarcho feminism and this like idea of like hierarchy being like fundamentally bad and like institutions like upholding those hierarchies.
0: Um mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and then she also wrote a memorial oration entitled The 11th of November, 1887, which was a response to the Haymarket Martyrs. And then in a speech called Why I Am An Anarchist, she talks about how women are denied liberty by socialization, the institutions of marriage, and by social pressures to have children. So her version of anarchism is, like, really, like, intertwined with, like, feminism. And... In 1894, she wrote In Defense of Emma Goldman and the Right of Expropriation, after Emma was arrested for stirring things up in New York. And this is a really flattering speech about Emma, and at one point, Voltarene even says, quote, "...the spirit which animates Emma Goldman is the only one which will emancipate the slave from his slavery, the tyrant from his tyranny, the spirit which is willing to dare and suffer." So with that, we'll leave Voltairine for a moment and talk about our other sister, Emma Goldman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with Emma, we're really lucky. I think I told you this already, Marva, because she wrote an autobiography. Oh, yeah. Um, She's the one with the autobiography. Yes. Whereas, And she also wrote about Voltairine. She wrote like a little biography about her. Um, but most of what we like read about Voltairine um or at least what i read about her came from her biographer paul average um and yeah emma begins her autobiography with moving to new york city alone at the age of 20 on august 5th 18 on august 15th 1889 she's just like you <laughs> yeah um but her life actually began on june 27th 1869 in the Jewish quarter of what is now Kaunas, Lithuania. And her parents. Oh, par- okay. did not expect Lithuania. But. Yeah. Um, she came from a little bit of all over, but that's where she was born. And her parents were Tauba and Abraham Goldman, and their relationship was pretty tumultuous. Her mother had two children from her first marriage who were Lena, I don't know if it's Lena or Elena, and Helena. And Emma was the first child she had with Abraham. And neither of her parents were, like, super thrilled about her birth because when Emma was born, her mother was still in mourning of her first husband. And Emma suggests that the loss of him for her mother was, like, so great that she was no longer capable of love. And... Okay. Yeah. That is very dark. I know. And her father, Abraham, was disappointed that his first child was a girl. So he got Taoba pregnant again. And then Taoba gave birth to Emma's younger brother the next year. And her parents had two more sons, Herman and Morris, in 1873 and 1875, respectively. And despite them having, like, four children together... Emma describes her mother's, quote, sexual coldness and blames her, her mother, for her father's bouts of rage and violence, which sounds really, really unfair to me. It sounds like also like super, like, not feminist. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Also, what kind of
1: child knows about their mother's sexual coldness? I mean, I don't think she knew that in the moment, but she's like reflecting on her life, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so after her father used her oldest sister's inheritance to make a bad investment and lost a bunch of money, he moved the family to Popeland and became an innkeeper. And here he was often subject to anti-Semitism at work and made to feel really small, and then would come home and basically take his anger out on his family. So to me, like that is a more logical explanation for his rage and violence than his wife you know um
0: yeah her her sexual coldness
1: yeah and also extremely relevant is that her mom suffered with depression and was really withdrawn from her family in general um but like her husband she was a really different person at home versus at work and outside of the house she was a public spokesperson and would advocate to the local government on behalf of jewish mothers so she kind of was able to like you know, kind of have two different lives, Um, and so did Mm -hmm. her husband, and they just had to, I guess. Um, And when Emma was around seven years old, her younger brother died, which added to her mother's turmoil. And the following year, her father sent Emma to live with her grandmother in Königsberg in East Prussia. And before she left, her father threatened that he would beat her if she found out she had misbehaved. And despite this toxic culture at home, she really missed her family, and even more so when her grandmother abandoned her without any explanation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So then Emma had to live with just her aunt and uncle, and her uncle was physically abusive and extremely demanding and took Emma out of school so that she could stay home and do housework. And the abuse was so apparent that two women who lived in the flat below her uncle and were not even related to Emma at all took her in after, I guess, something really bad had happened and nursed her back to health. Um, And her aunt asked those women to contact her, to contact Emma's father and grandmother. And eventually they both came back to Konigsberg. And um, her father was really nice because obviously he doesn't want his daughter to be like, You know, like, suffering so much, um, even though Mm -hmm. he had also threatened to beat her. Um, And her grandmother kicked the uncle out of the house. Um, Oh, that's good. Yeah. I'm like, you shouldn't have left in the first place, but... Yeah, yeah. but
0: I mean, it's not... I feel like she... Although she left, she probably, in her mind, wasn't abandoning her. She was Mm -hmm. like, oh, like, there's still two adults Mm -hmm. that she must have trusted somewhat
1: to look
0: after her. Which
1: she shouldn't have, but...
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, how would you know? Like, you never know that.
1: Like, Yeah, I guess. Um, but yeah, so then Emma returned with her father to Popeland. But soon after, he moved the entire family to Konigsberg. And Emma's formal education um, was a mixture of private tutoring and strict Jewish schools. And at this time, being educated in high German culture was very important to Russian Jews which sounds like such a specific and weird combination that I had no idea about. Um, But I guess that was the trend. So she read lots of great works of literature and they really inspired her. And when she was 11, her German teacher took a special interest in her and took her to her first opera, which was her first real introduction to like Western European culture. And, After a few years in Königsberg, her father moved their family yet again, this time to St. Petersburg. And here, Emma was in a cultural epicenter, but she was too young to really get involved in the political action that she was kind of getting an interest in. And she did, however, associate with a radical student circle and began shifting her interest from German literature to Russian literature, which would be really important with how she like formulates her ideas. Mm. And Emma was not just a good little girl who loved reading books and going to the opera. <laughs> um she had a distinctive rebellious streak that many of her instructors picked up on. And when she was living with her uncle, she talks about how she often fantasized about being like the biblical woman Judith who beheaded her oppressor. So she definitely I'm has some like yeah, like violent tendencies. Um And this, like, violent, rebellious instinct combined with her now voracious reading of Russian literature made her realize, like, she wants kind of more out of life. Um, Unfortunately, at the age of 13, she had to drop out of school and start working in a factory to support her family. But she really didn't want, like, this lifestyle of just working in a factory and getting married. Like, her parents kind of had this life planned out for her. Um, Uh, Can I tell you
0: something really quick?
1: Yes. There's this um, exhibition that
0: I actually wanted to go to. Like, I never usually want to go to exhibitions, but there's (laughs) one that I did want to go to. And of course, it was this month, and now I can't go. But it was Mm. by this lady artist called Artemisia. And she had been, like, abused, and so then all of her paintings are, like, of women, like, killing (laughs) like their husbands abusers and stuff like Hmm. she'll take like paintings that like a lot of like men like do you know like biblical stories or like some kind of like folktale kind of thing that get represented in art all the time and she like takes the same story but like flips it where like um there's one I don't know what it's called but it's like this thing where there's like these Guys that are like watching this lady like bathe or something, and like it's totally creepy, but like all these male artists have like made it into this, like, mm. oh, what like a fun little thing, and mm. she does it and like makes them into like total creeps and like points out that like <laughs> this is not okay, yeah, um, yeah, so <laughs> that just reminded me of it,
1: huh? Yeah, super interesting. I'll have to look her up, yeah, um, yeah, so. Okay. Basically, Emma is a young teenager. She's not happy with her life or the life that's like set up for her. Um, But unfortunately, marriage was like a fast approaching topic because um, her father found out that she had been sexually assaulted by a friend um, like as a teenager. And so his response to this wasn't like, compassion or like caring for her mm-hmm. but rather trying to arrange a marriage i guess to kind of like mitigate the scandal which is like obviously so stupid is she pregnant or something no like, he just
0: no okay no
1: just that i guess like you know like she's been with someone in a mm-hmm. way if yeah he looks probably at it that like way. get her married like before other people find out and like yeah that kind of stuff um But when he told her that he was going to try to arrange a marriage for her, she threatened to take her own life if he did. So for a little while, he, like, relaxed his control over her. But still, Emma and her sister, um, Helena, were eager for a way out. And their oldest sister, Elena had already moved to America. And so the girls realized that that was kind of, like, their way out of their predestined life. So Helena, who is now age 24, paid for a 16-year-old Emma's passage to America and her own passage in late 1885. And after arriving in New York, they made their way upstate to Rochester, where Lena was living with her husband. He, Her husband only earned $12 a week, and Lena was currently pregnant. And so Emma and Helena had to look for work immediately because he couldn't support a family of, like, 5 on $12. Yeah. So Emma started working, unfortunately, in a factory again. And the foremen were really strict and wouldn't allow the women to talk while they worked. So she started to feel really isolated. Because when she worked in Russia in a factory, the women would, like, sing songs together to pass the time. Mm-hmm. But, like, the culture like here you. was... I know. <laughs> the culture here was, like, really different. And... Emma obviously had been exposed to, like, a lot of anti-Semitism. That's what forced her family to, like, move from place to place all the time. Um, But she kind of, I guess, expected there to be, like, solidarity amongst Jewish people. But she was really disenchanted at this, like, stark divide between the wealthy German-Jewish person who owned the factory and the Russian-Jewish workers, like, herself, Mm -hmm. who he exploited. Um, And so that was just really frustrating. She wasn't happy. And... Emma, after a few weeks of working there, complained to her owner about her insufficient wages because, as we know, she's not one to, like, put up with any nonsense. Um, and she was <laughs> making just, like, $2.50 a week, which is a huge difference to her brother-in-law. Um, yeah. And he refused to give her a raise, so she quit and found another job. And Emma found a kindred spirit in Jacob Kreshner a fellow Russian-Jewish immigrant who loved to read and dance and also hated the factory life. And at 17, Emma got engaged to Jacob. And around the same time, her parents moved to the U.S., once again fleeing anti-Semitism, And suddenly their house had Emma, her parents, her sister, two brothers, and her fiancé. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and it was just way too crowded. So Emma and Jacob got married sooner rather than later so that they could live together on their own. And Mm -hmm. that was in February 1887. Okay, this next thing is a little bit intimate, (laughs) I guess is the way I would (laughs) use to describe it. Um, Okay. (laughs) So Emma was definitely attracted to her husband. But she had had a complicated relationship with men in general. Um, She later wrote that she, quote, always felt between two fires in the presence of men. Their lure remained strong, but it was always mingled with violent revulsion. I could not bear to have them touch me. And so... That makes sense, I feel like. Yeah, I think it makes sense, too. A lot. After every man has been mean... or Not every man, but many men in her life have been yeah violent towards her or abusive um so in a way I think it's kind of fortunate that her husband turned out to be impotent given that she was like violently revulsed by men um Mm -hmm. but at the moment Emma was deeply frustrated by that and she started to feel even more isolated as her husband grew distant and she was just like very obviously frustrated with him so he started spending less time with her, more time with his friends, like, playing cards and stuff, and she just felt like mm-hmm. he had, like, emotionally abandoned her. Um, and since divorce wasn't really an option in their traditional Jewish community, for a while she stayed with her husband and stopped, sought purpose in and community elsewhere. So in 1887, again, we have the Haymarket Riots. When she read the speeches that the, men gave, the condemned men gave at their sentencing, She felt really outraged and was really upset that they actually were executed. And she felt so passionately about this that she once threw a glass of water at her relative who had spoken ill of the Haymarket martyrs. Um, So she's really upset. And Mm -hmm. yeah, she just continued growing more and more into this emboldened version of herself to the point that two years into her marriage, she divorced Jacob and moved to New Haven, Connecticut. And here she became friends with a group of Russian immigrants who debated socialism and anarchism in the evenings. But between working and attending these meetings in the evening, she became so physically weak and her body succumbed, succumbed succumbed (laughs) to tuberculosis. Um, And she, this illness forced her to move back in with Helena. And now that she was back in Rochester, New York, Jacob managed to convince emma to remarry him and then when she ultimately left him again a second time because they still had the same problems they had as before Mm -hmm. her family disowned her and the rochester jewish community shunned her so yeah she really had to hightail it out so Mm -hmm. that brings us once again to to august 15th 1889 moving to new york city And this is the scene that begins Emma's memoir and really begins a whole new chapter in her life. So at first she moved in with an aunt and uncle in the city, but she quickly met a whole host of anarchists and socialists and started to feel more at home with them. And through one anarchist, um, she found a home to live in with two other women, and she was delighted to finally live free of familial obligations. And she briefly worked in a factory again, in a corset factory, but she found a new job after that that allowed her to work from home sewing clothing. And doing so, like working at home, um, allowed her more time and freedom to get involved in anarchist activities. And Emma's eloquence and dedication quickly made her a popular speaker in New York's immigrant anarchist community. She lectured in both German and Yiddish to immigrant factory workers like herself, and eventually lectured in English to diverse audiences, including middle-class men and women, intellectuals, and even farmers. And two men in this anarchist community, Alexander Berkman, who goes by Sasha, and Johann Most, developed crushes on Emma. So, I'm surprised that his name is Alexander, but then he goes by Sasha. Yeah, it's a Russian thing. Alexander is like shortened to Sasha. Really? Mm-hmm. And it's a boy oh. a boy nickname. Um, so Johan, who is um German and Alexander, like I said, is Russian. Um, Johan only really liked Emma when she thought what he thought. And when she started developing her own ideas and getting attention from the press, he basically stopped liking her. And that's when Emma first realized how much sexism and hypocrisy was in the anarchist community.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And Alexander, or Sasha, actually liked Emma for her own strength and originality. And within a year of knowing each other, they became romantically involved and moved in together, along with Sasha's cousin, Fidya a young artist and they kind of had like a communal living situation um and living with them Emma finally felt loved and genuinely happy for the first time in her life so it is good uh, yeah. i'm happy for you. <laughs> it is good i know it's turning around but there's going to be some drama <laughs> um so after Emma posed nude for Fadia they both revealed... Bagia is a boy. Is or a girl. boy. Okay. Yeah. Um. There was another girl living with them, Anna Minkin, who was her former roommate, and she lived with them for a little while. And, um, Sasha also hooked up with her, so they have like free okay. love situation. Um, okay, I see. <laughs> but they revealed after that that they were both were in love with each other. Um. And then eventually they told Sasha, and he was, like, he kind of already knew, like, you could tell. Um, so oh, wait. What? She's in love with Fasia? She's in love with both of them. Okay. <laughs> so the three of them, um, and also, like I said, like, Anna Minkin and Anna's sister, Helen, um, often live together in, like, commune-style living. And they moved from New York to New Hampshire to Massachusetts. Um, And they started a few businesses together, but none of them really lasted. And all the while, they all remained deeply involved in the anarchist movement. And in 1892, Sasha attempted to assassinate someone who was um, Henry, Henry Clay Frick. He owned the steel company, and they weren't treating their workers fairly and were threatening them with violence. So he decided to go and try to assassinate him. Okay, but that is a bit extreme. No? Yes, for sure. <laughs> I agree. Um, but basically, he needed money to assassinate him, to buy a gun, to take training, train, all this stuff. And Emma wanted to raise money for him, so she tried her hand at sex work. Um, she wanted to raise money for him to go and assassinate yes. someone? They have, like, a communal life, so they all share money. So it's not, like, you know what I mean? It's, like, that's how it yeah, would work. I just – I didn't see this jump in
0: Emma's <laughs>
1: – No, Emma never it's personally advocates. advocates for violence, but she thinks it's justified. Mm-hmm. But she is associated with a lot of violence. She's not – she's mm-hmm. not a chill girl. <laughs> yeah. Um So, yeah. So trying to make money for Sasha – um for his assassination attempt she tried to become a sex worker briefly but she only got one client and he could tell she didn't know what she was doing so he just gave (laughs) her the money and said like you're not meant for this life basically oh my god um it was really harder than it looks yeah (laughs) it was really awkward because she saw this client or she saw this guy who like wanted to pay for some time with her and Mm -hmm. then she first they went to this one restaurant and then she realized she'd gone on a date there before with Johan. And she was like, this is awkward. And then so she took him somewhere else. And then she was just being really awkward. And he was like, I don't think you're an actual sex mm-hmm. worker. Um, but, yeah. So... Well, that's nice that he gave her the money.
0: Yeah. It all
1: worked but out. But then the it's end.
0: not nice that he gave her the money to then pay for an assassination. This I is know. A whole
1: lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, as you kind of guessed... Emma's close association with Sasha meant that his actions affected her reputation. And even though her primary form of political action was always education, not violence, people started to see her as dangerous. And the police raided her apartment. Um, and two days later, she was evicted from her building. After the Two days after the police raided.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this leads to a weird little episode in her life where she changes her name to E.G. Smith and starts living in a house of prostitution but not working as a prostitute because obviously she's not good at it. She's sewing mm-hmm. dresses for the women who lived and worked there. Um, her sewing was really like what keeps her afloat. <laughs> like she, mm-hmm. That's like her day job, kind of how Voltarine's day job is like um, tutoring. But so did she and her boyfriends break up or she just is living away from She's them? kind of like in hiding basically. Oh, okay. That's why she changed her name, because Mm -hmm. yeah, she was, like, kicked out. Um, So, six months after the assassination attempt, Emma met Ed Brady, who was a recent immigrant from Austria, and who had been in prison for publishing illegal anarchist literature. And Ed taught Emma French, and introduced her to a bunch of literary classics like Rousseau and Voltaire. And while she was dating and tutoring under Ed, Emma contracted tuberculosis again, so she had to leave the city to rest. Um, But she soon realized, and I don't agree with this logic at all, but that political activism would heal her more than isolation. (laughs) And so she reemerged to the public eye and started talking at rallies again in 1893. Okay, not to be, like, too uh, coronavirus-y, but is
0: tuberculosis not contagious? I'm not sure. I was thinking about that too. So I'm like, it might be that, like, oh, you still want your political activism, but like, maybe it
1: should. But is it like?
0: Is,
1: is it like if you cough blood on someone, then they get it, or is it like? I don't think it's as as contagious as coronavirus, probably. You know, I don't know. Yeah, but people just in the old days, they seem to always they're be dying literally from always having it. Yeah. Um. So. At a rally in Union Square in New York, she said, if they do not give you work, demand bread. If they deny you both, take the bread. And this phrase would come back to bite her. Um, Mm -hmm. But I like it. I'm like, yeah, take the bread. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in August of the same year, Emma went to Philadelphia to speak at a rally after she did the Union Square um, speech. And this is the first time she officially met Voltarine. And she writes, quote, The first time I met her, the most gifted and brilliant anarchist woman America ever produced, end quote. She found Voltarine ill and bad. And she'd heard her speak in New York before, but she'd never met her up close. And she soon found out that after pretty much every public experience, Voltarine would have to be bedridden for days, quote, in constant agony from some disease of the nervous system. And I'm not sure if this, what they call the disease of the nervous system, is actually catar, which is, like, the mm-hmm. sinus disease that would make her bedridden. But basically, that was, like, a common state for Volterine to be in.
0: But um, I also feel like back in this day, like, people don't actually understand nerves. And so, like...
1: No, yeah.
0: <laughs> people will always be like, oh, like, if this woman is, like, uh, you know, has a cold,
1: like, it's her nerves. Yeah, exactly. And... <laughs> um. So... Emma was supposed to speak in Philadelphia, but um, Voltairine ended up speaking in her place because Emma was arrested and extradited to New York. And that was because of the speech she had given in New York like a little while before about the like, if they deny you bread, take the bread. Um, Mm -hmm. And so she was sentenced to one year in prison for, quote, inciting a riot and disbelief in God and government.
0: Which is, again, oh, I do not know. You could be arrested. I know, <laughs> uh, arrested, arrested that. Yeah, um, but I mean, I do see like not to be too on the side of the police or whatever. Um, but that like, she's not inciting. I don't think she's obviously inciting a riot. But like, you can be get charged for like inciting people to do damage. Yeah, which I think is encouraging
1: them to steal. Mm-hmm. I see how I see that line of thinking. Yeah. Um, but this is this arrest is what Voltarine wrote about in her, like, speech about Emma and saying, like, she had every right. To, she talks about, like, the, like, stealing the bread thing and, like, why that's okay, I guess. Mm-hmm. But obviously that's all an anarchist viewpoint. Um, yeah. And <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, this is totally okay. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's okay, too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So Emma's time in prison proved to be, like, remarkably productive and actually changed the course of her life. Because when she was inside prison, she suffered an attack of rheumatism, and that made her have to go to the infirmary where she befriended a doctor and started studying medicine. And also, yeah, also while she was in prison, she read dozens of books, including works by American activist writers. Um, So she's kind of now got like a lot of like German, Russian and American literature under her belt. Um and when she left prison she was even more famous than when she gone in and 3000 people greeted her on the day of her release. Um so pretty wow pretty cool. <laughs> uh, I mean
0: also because I think before you were saying that like the groups are, like, pretty small, but, like, to have 3,000 people waiting for you, like, to get out of prison, that's, like, yeah. a lot of people. So it seems like a lot of people must be...
1: Yeah, I feel like the people who are doing the activism is small, but people who, like, you know, like, listen to them.
0: Because,
1: mm-hmm. like, um like Voltairine spoke in front of 10,000 people, you yeah, know? Yeah, that's true. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of people, like, listening and knowing who they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, after... She left prison. She became involved with the campaign for women's suffrage and birth control. And she also continued her medical practice. And in 1895, she went to Europe and studied midwifery because it wasn't super popular to study in the U.S. apparently, which is really weird. Um, She was interested in like midwifery and massage and like those things were like not super common. Um, Mm -hmm.
0: I think I did read something one time about you know how like giving birth has changed over the years and that mm-hmm. it was like because in the 18 like late 1800s is when like people actually have some scientific education and so being a doctor becomes like an actual career rather mm. than just like a, let, let me put leeches on you and so <laughs> yes. like that led to a decline in like women who were like midwives and that kind of stuff Mm, because it didn't have the same like formal training and obviously if a man can do it a man i'm sure it can do it better and so when as doctors came up then like midwifery went down
1: yeah wow thank you marva that is super answers my question (laughs) um you're
0: very welcome yeah
1: so um yeah long ago emma had decided for herself that she didn't want to have children but she had also declared that she wanted to be a mother to all children. Um, and so she did this in a way by helping bring new life into the world as a midwife. And I think that's really beautiful. Because when yeah, she said really that, true. she didn't ever expect to be a midwife. But she was like, women have this like kind of opposite to what Vultrine thinks. She thought that women have like a natural need to be a mother. And that she could fulfill mm-hmm. that by like being a mother to all children. Because... She'd seen so many children living in poverty, and like she didn't want to bring new life into the world, like from her own body, but she wanted to like yeah. help other women and children, yeah, and like the whole like it takes a village yeah of thing, I feel like yeah, um so Emma earned two diplomas for midwifery in Vienna, and she also lectured in while in Europe in London, Glasgow, and Edinburgh. And eventually, she temporarily returned to America to practice midwifery and also lecture. And she became the first anarchist speaker to do a cross-country tour. So she was clearly in, like, pretty high demand. And in 1899, she went back to Europe. And now that our stories are kind of syncing up, I want to shift back to Volterine. So... In 1899, mm-hmm. Voltaire's health was on a steep decline. Her hair was falling out so much that she cut it all off because it was just like
0: mm-hmm. she was
1: not healthy. Um yeah. and she was generally unhappy with her living situation and because she was like always almost always in a state of poverty, but she refused to accept money from anyone. And she, like I said, she loved nature and the countryside, but she spent most of her life in a bustling city. So she was just really unhappy. Mm. Um, and then her first real brush with death happened not because of her illness, but rather, Marva, take your seat buckle, buckle yourself in. Thank <laughs> <Okay>. you. <laughs> so December 19th, 1902, she came across one of her former students, Herman Helcher. And as she turned towards him, he pulled out a pistol and fired point blank. Oh, my God. Yep. The bullet struck her. Just like her. in the middle of the street. Yeah, literally. Um, the bullet struck her just above the heart. And then as she turned around, he fired three more times, hitting <gasps> her twice in the back.
0: And oh, my God.
1: Somehow, Marva, when I tell you this woman is a fighter, believe me, mm-hmm. she ran half a block. While she has three bullets inside of her. And then she collapsed. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, one of her other students who was in the area um, and was a doctor rushed to help her.
0: That is fortunate.
1: Yeah. and He
0: just happened to be. I know. (laughs) Um,
1: And she was taken to Hanneman Hospital where her wounds were pronounced fatal. And, okay, there's some conflicting evidence about this. But basically... This was a homeopathic hospital, so they didn't make any attempts to operate on her. And so they just, she just had three bullets inside of why her. Why did
0: they take her to a homeopathic I hospital? I don't know.
1: Um, however, Emma Goldman writes that um, Volterine like, had the ones, the bullets from her back removed, but not the one in her chest because it's too close to her heart. But everyone mm-hmm. else says she didn't have any bullets removed. So I don't mm-hmm. know why Emma said that. Um, okay, but wait, so why did she get shot in the first place? So, I'm going to get to that. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, she was hovering between life and death for a few days, and then suddenly, with literally out any help from anyone, <laughs> started to improve. Mm-hmm. And as she was recovering, she wrote to her friend, one of her friends in Scotland, and said, I believe that outside of the actual physical pain of the first three days, my friends suffered more than I did. I do not know what a kind of a curious constitution I am blessed with. But some way I settled into the coldest kind of mental attitude in which the chief characteristic was unshakable determination not to die. Hmm. And I'm just like, dang, the strength it takes. <laughs> um, so, okay, let me give you the background. So this, this shooting was plotted in advance. Herman had intended to shoot her a few days earlier, but Voltarine was with her, one of her friends, one of her best friends, and so he was like, oh, I can't shoot her because then this girl will see me. And then he struck again on Dece- December 19th when he spotted her alone. And shortly before this, like, plot had started, he had written to Voltarine saying that he was poor and hungry, but Voltarine didn't even know he was in Philadelphia, so she didn't really try to help him. And when... Volta- but she's also poor and hungry. I know. Um, and when Voltarine's friend told Herman this, that she didn't know, he said, well, why didn't she know? She ought to have known. Nobody cared about me. And it was just, like, yeah, really shocking. Um, Wait, but so is that the reason why he shot her? Yeah, that she basically... He was mentally ill and really poor and in a bad state. Mm -hmm. And her not helping him, I guess, just, like, aggravated him and, like, proved to him that, like, no one cared. And so she became the target Mm -hmm. of his, like, anger. Oh, my gosh. That is so sad. It is so sad. It's literally tragic. And what's so shocking to me is that, Volterine was nothing but sympathetic immediately after the accident. So Mm -hmm. just three days after the shooting, while she was still in hospital and she – Dictated this to a local newspaper, I didn't even write it because she's literally dying. Um, she said, The boy who they say shot me is crazy. Lack of proper food and healthy labor made him so. He ought to be put in an asylum. It would be an outrage against civilization if he were sent to jail for such an act, which was the product of a diseased brain. And mm-hmm. later she said, He did not know what he was doing, and I have no resentment towards the man. If society were so constituted to allow every man, woman, and child to lead a normal life, there would be no violence in this world. So she really just, like, blamed society for creating Mm -hmm. this problem and not helping him. And Mm -hmm. she even wrote to other anarchists in the free society to raise a fund for his defense. But not everyone was as forgiving as she was because they were like, this man shot our friend. (laughs) Um, Yeah,
0: three times.
1: Yeah. So he she wasn't able to raise the money he needed and he was ultimately sentenced to six years in prison okay I mean this is the whole thing is strange he shot her three times and got sentenced to
0: six years like that does I mean like I agree with her that like he should probably be dealt with in a different way but if you're not going to deal with it in that way how is six
1: years in prison going to help yeah it's not like a big a big yeah, thing for attempted murder um Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I don't know if it's because she wasn't, like, pressing charges. I don't know if that plays a role at mm. all. I don't know how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, So, Voltarine left the hospital on January 2nd in 1903, and by March, she was lecturing again. And now she was very vocal specifically about her oppositions to prison and her belief that the government was the biggest criminal. So, if anything, this just made her even more, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, like, gave her more fire to talk about these kind of things. Um, She traveled to Europe again, this time sailing to Oslo, which was then called Christiania, in August of 1903. I'm just like, who gets shot three times in a time before modern Mm -hmm. medicine and doesn't get treated and then, like, eight months later goes to Oslo? (laughs) Like, that's so crazy. Um, Yeah. But, so, another, like, unfortunate turn of events is that for some reason, the local press in Oslo reported that, quote, a good-looking young American lady had come to assassinate a Kaiser who was visiting from Germany. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know where they got this rumor from because she literally wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. But as a result, she was closely watched the whole time she was there. Um, and, I mean, at least that means she's pretty. <laughs> she's a good-looking young American <laughs> <Yeah>. lady. <laughs> like, oh, who, me? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Then she went, Back to Scotland again um, to visit her friends and give lectures, and then went to England. And in England, one audience member actually compared her to Emma, and he said she was very nice looking, not like Emma, and a good speaker. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) God. Which is so sad. So I guess,
0: yeah, I guess the whole being pretty thing um, is quite a compliment. Yeah, it's a theme. Nobody's afraid, <laughs> nobody's afraid to say like I know, yeah. But
1: Emma's <laughs> ugly. Yeah, it's <laughs> poor Emma. Yes. Um, but objectively, Volterine is gorgeous. I don't know if you saw her Instagram post, but she's so pretty. Um, oh, I didn't. I haven't seen it. I'll look
0: at it in just a minute. Okay, okay. I'll look at it right now. Okay. While
1: okay. <laughs> so once again, this trip to Europe revived her, but unfortunately, not for long. Because she, re- she returned to the U.S. and her chronic illness started acting up and worsened to the point that she suffered from temporary deafness in early 1904. And oh if you'll remember, she had the pounding in her ears and she compared it mm-hmm. to like a locomotive train is like what it felt like. And then eventually she became deaf for a while. And her sickness was so bad that she actually had to stop lecturing and her friends formed a group called Friends of De Declare to raise money for her. And they telegrammed Emma Goldman, who agreed to become the secretary of the fund. So at this point, their friendship had been kind of on and off because they definitely respected each other, but they definitely also didn't always agree with each other. Um, mm-hmm. Voltarine wrote about their differing views saying... Miss Goldman is a communist. I am an individualist. She wishes to destroy the right of property. I wish to assert it. I make my war upon privilege and authority, whereby the right of property, the true right in that which is proper to the individual, is annihilated. She believes Mm -hmm. that cooperation would entirely supplant competition. I hold that competition, in one form or other, will always exist, and that it is highly desirable it should. So, I mean to me I kind of I get Volterine's version a little bit better. Um mm-hmm. like an individualist type of anarchism. Um Okay, so I just looked up
0: Volterine, mm-hmm. and she is pretty. But also yeah, in Emma's defense, Emma is like very cool looking. <laughs> yeah, like she's got that like nerdy cool vibe. Like hipster, you
1: know? yeah, for sure. Yeah. My thing with Emma, she just kind of always looks old <laughs> like i found like yeah. one picture of her that she looks kind of like young in, which is fine like i think it's good for women to be allowed to age um mm-hmm. but like mostly she just always has this kind of like aged you know wisdom vibe about her yeah whereas like volturine always looks really young uh-huh i feel
0: like some people just look that way
1: yeah okay Some
0: people, some of us, obviously look young and think that you and I are twins. (laughs) Yeah. Even though I'm four years older than you. Mm.
1: So as Vultorine's health declined, so did the anarchist movement in the wake of McKinley's assassination, President McKinley's assassination in 1901. And this is a whole lot to get into. But basically, like I said, Emma's associated with a lot of violence, even though she doesn't directly Mm -hmm. do it. Um. So the person who killed President McKinley says he was inspired by Emma Goldman. And, oh, shoot. Yeah. And so she and a bunch of her friends were arrested temporarily. Um, but amazing as she is, kind of like a Voltarene style, um, Goldman offered to like because McKinley had a few days between when he was shot and when he died. Mm-hmm. Um, and Goldman offered to provide. <laughs> this is actually also pr- maybe just being savage, but she was like, she offered to provide him with nursing care, referring to him as quote oh merely a human being. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah, I'd be like, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're like, you're in jail oh. because we think you yeah. orchestrated his assassination. <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. Just like it's okay. I'll die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. Um and. So after this, Emma started using the name E.G. Smith again and left the public life and took on a series of private nursing jobs. Then in 1903, an anti-anarchist law made it so that foreign anarchists couldn't immigrate. And Theodore Roosevelt, McKinley's successor, declared his intent to crack down, quote, not only on anarchists, but on all active and passive sympathizers with anarchists. So the anarchist movement was in a really bad place. Vulturine is yeah. sick. Emma's, like, in hiding. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I guess, I mean, I still don't, like, fully, like, see the appeal of the anarchism. But I feel like <laughs> if you, I mean, I don't know. Like, if he was, like, the, like, dictator and you assassinated him, then, like, mm-hmm. maybe I could see where you're coming from. But, like, you
1: assassinate the, like, democratically elected president. yeah. Mike, Also, let me just say the person who assassinated McKinley was never fully accepted into like the anarchist group. Like he tried to become Mm -hmm. friends with like Emma and her friends, but they were really weirded out by that by him. And they thought that he was actually Mm -hmm. a spy because he kept asking really weird questions. Mm -hmm. But he just turned out to be um, kind of like mentally ill in a a way that led to him having violent tendencies. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously not. I 0% think that mental illness is like. Leads you to being violent. But, like, yeah, um, he, like, was in a time with no treatment and mm-hmm. was feeling rejected by people, etc. And so mm-hmm. that led him to, like, s- some kind of, like, erotic behavior, which was assassinating the president. Um, yeah. But he doesn't, like, stand for the anarchist movement. And that's why, like, Emma and her friends were released. Because even mm-hmm. he, the guy who assassinated McKinley, said, like, yeah, like, Emma kind of inspired me, but she had nothing to do with this. And so there Mm -hmm. wasn't really, like, a reason for them to hold her. Yeah. Yeah. So several years after this decline from McKinley's assassination to now the spring of 1906, Voltarine was back on her feet, and Emma was starting to rejoin the movement. And in March of that year, 1906, Emma launched Mother Earth, which was, like, an anarchist publication. And Voltarine and several of her friends became regular contributors – also this year in May, Sasha, remember good old Sasha who assassinated mm-hmm. that guy, finally replaced, released from prison. So he oh, got I on... didn't realize that he actually assassinated me. Yeah. It was attempted, but he went to jail oh, okay. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now it's kind of like the band's back together. They're all working on Mother <laughs> Earth. Um, so Emma wrote frequently about anarchism, politics, labor issues atheism sexuality and feminism in her publication then in 1907 sasha took over mother earth while emma toured the country trying to raise funds for the publication and later that year she actually served as a delegate from the u.s to the international anarchist congress of amsterdam so she was like fully back into it Mm -hmm. and when she returned to the u.s Emma started a really busy period of her life. For 10 years, she was traveling around the country nonstop. Her audiences were often packed. And people from across the political spectrum acknowledged her magnetic power. Hmm. And during this period, she met and fell in love with Ben Reitman, and they technically had an open relationship, but at this point, she was only with Ben, and Ben was just with other <laughs> women. Um, so it wasn't like oh. the best kind of <laughs> open relationship. Um, and she published a book called Anarchism and Other Essays in 1910. In the same year that Emma's life was taking off again, Voltaire's health, both physical and mental, was on the decline. In 1910, she found herself disillusioned with her, life's, with her life's work and wrote to a friend, I can see no use in doing anything. Everything turns bitter in my mouth and ashes in my hands. So Voltaire moved back to the Midwest and settled in Chicago. She was briefly reinvigorated by news of the Mexican Revolution. And Emma wrote that for Voltaire, the Mexican cause was, quote, of most vital consequence to her. She devoted herself entirely to it, writing, lecturing, and collecting funds. And it seemed like this was the kind of thing that Volterine really needed to keep her going. And she was so inspired by what was happening in Mexico. Um, and she wrote to friends that they're part of the, quote, actual death struggle for what we anarchists pretend to believe in. So she like really believed in the work they were doing. Mm -hmm. In July 1911, Volterine became the Chicago correspondent for Generación and organized the Mexican Liberal Defense Fund. She even started studying Spanish, and in September, she prepared to go to L.A. to be closer to the struggle. But Mm -hmm. sadly, she fell ill again, and she never got to go on that trip. So her last and one of her most famous poems, called Written in Red, which is literally written in red ink, um, was published in regeneracion towards the end of nineteen eleven and in on April seventeenth nineteen twelve Volterine died at the age of forty five of a cranial infection that had developed oh out of a perforated eardrum so given her deafness and the like drumming in her ears and stuff i don 't know if that's maybe mm-hmm. like associated with her lifelong illness um So, but despite her lifelong suffering, she wrote that she would not have traded her poor health for wellness if it meant giving up her beliefs in the anarchist cause. So, yeah. That is dedication. I know, truly. Um, So that's the end of Voltarine's life, but Emma still has a long way to go. (laughs) So in 1916, Emma was briefly arrested for spreading the word about birth control along with... Margaret Sanger, who I'm sure is a familiar name in the feminist community. Um, and Margaret Sanger had coined the phrase birth control just two years earlier. And if Margaret is
0: not a familiar name, <laughs> is there anything <laughs> that she we should know about her?
1: Well, she's a famous feminist from this period. But I mean, she's kind of controversial because she sometimes was like um, promoted eugenics basically, oh. um, okay. but she was really involved in, like, the birth control movement and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So on June 15th of the next year, shortly after Congress had passed an act requiring military, military conscription, because here we are, it's the war, World War One. I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to, like, introduce that. Are. It's the war. <laughs> yeah. The Great War. <laughs> <laughs> Um so Emma was arrested again this time for conspiracy to induce persons not to register which was an act of rebellion against conscription because of course an anarchist is going to be like you can't force people to fight in war um mm-hmm. and both she and Sasha were arrested and she defended both of them in court but lost and she was her own lawyer Yeah I know wow. for Sasha I and mean, herself But
0: like I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and mm-hmm. the only people who do that are psychopaths. But Ooh, interesting! I guess, <laughs> I guess we'll give her a pass.
1: <laughs> no, I think she used the First Amendment as her reason, like it was free speech to say they don't have to register, um, mm-hmm. but they didn't buy it. So mm-hmm. she was sentenced for two years in prison. And she wrote to a friend about this saying, two years imprisonment for having made an uncompromising stand for one's ideal. Why that is a small price. So (laughs) she's just like unbothered. Mm -hmm. Um, And President Hoover, while Emma and um, Sasha were in prison, wrote, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman are beyond doubt two of the most dangerous anarchists in this country and return to the community Will result in undue harm. So, mm-hmm. that his statement combined with widespread anxiety about Bolshevism, which was like a Russian social, like communist movement, and the fact yeah. that Emma and Sasha are both Russian immigrants, that mm-hmm. resulted in them being deported as soon as they were let out of oh, prison. Um, mm-hmm. So, they ended up in Russia, where Emma heard. Um a comment she once heard a communist party official say that free speech was a bourgeois superstition, and when they met Lenin himself, he told them that quote There can be no free speech in a revolutionary period, and this just really, really rubbed Emma the wrong way because her whole life she spent yeah. about like you know people's rights um yeah, but also how is it a superstition? I know a bourgeois superstition,
0: yeah, I don't know um I think. I still am kind of, like, I just don't really understand what it is that they want. Because, like, before, I thought they wanted,
1: like, communism. like Yeah, so she like, was a oh. communist. Yeah, this is, like, mm-hmm. her stance on the communists is going to cause some drama. Because, like, she just changed her mind. Basically. Not changed her mind, but, like, realized it's, like, not actually that great when it's, like, put into mm-hmm. practice. Um, yeah. Yeah, so... After they helped us with a strike that ended up turning into a really violent rebellion, Emma and Sasha left Russia and moved to Latvia in 1921. And eventually they moved to Berlin, where Emma wrote two more books called My Disillusionment in Russia and My Further Disillusionment in Russia um, in 1923 and 1924. These titles were not her choice, they were like the publisher's choice to just sell more books. Mm-hmm. She wasn't like super popular I like it about though, that, really. <laughs> yeah um then in 1924 emma left sasha and moved to london and as soon as she got there she was invited to a reception dinner in her honor where over 200 guests attended and this was like a fancy dinner it had um the famous philosopher bertrand russell who marva you read his book before you didn't like it i think
0: yeah yes (laughs)
1: and the novelist h.g wells who's also super famous um, mm-hmm. and both in London and Berlin, Emma kind of had this issue where whenever she spoke ill of the communist party, people were like rubbed the wrong way. And so when this happened at the party, some people even left the dinner because they were like so upset and like other people just like berated her for like speaking ill of the communist party and saying like, oh, we just need to give them time. She's like, mm-hmm. no, I, they don't care about people. <laughs> yeah um, something now like I met their leader, and yeah, um, so even in England, Emma faced the risk of deportation, so she married an acquaintance, James Colton, for British citizenship in nineteen twenty five and this new status allowed her to travel with a lot more ease, and she went to Canada in nineteen twenty seven And in 1933, she was briefly permitted back into America as long as she promised not to speak about any political events. So she stayed from February until May of that year and then moved to Canada and then moved to France. In 1936, while she was in France, um, she wrote to Sasha because he didn't come to see her on her birthday. Um, and then he called her and it was, like, a weird phone call, I guess. Um, and then it turned out that Sasha had attempted to take his own life. So she, like, rushed to Nice to see him. But by the time she was there, he was already in a coma. And then he passed away that evening. Um, and this wasn't the first time Sasha had, like, considered taking his own life. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's not, like, a huge surprise, but it's still obviously a shock um Mm -hmm. and then on february 17th of 1940 um emma suffered a a debilitating stroke and became paralyzed on the right side of her body which rendered her unable to speak and just considering she had been this great speaker who literally traveled all over america multiple times that must have been like so hard for her um and so for a few Mm -hmm. months she was starting to make gradual improvements but then she suffered another stroke on May 8th and then died on May 14th at the age of 70.
0: And Yeah, she lived to be quite old. Yeah,
1: for, for like sure. that, back in the day. Yeah. Um, and so the United States actually allowed her body to be brought back to be buried. And she and Volterine are buried um, in the same cemetery. Oh, that is cute. Yeah. Near the graves of those who were executed in the Haymarket riots. So... That was the event that inspired both of them to really become anarchists. And now they're buried mm-hmm. near each other and near those people. So yeah. that's really Circle cool. That's life. Yeah. <laughs> that's in the German Waldheim Cemetery in Illinois. Um, yeah. So I know this has been a super long episode. I do have a couple <laughs> little things to say a little bit more. <laughs> um, but basically, Voltaire's biographer, Paul Average calls her, quote, a brief comment in the anarchist firmament, blazing out quickly and soon forgotten by all but a small circle of comrades whose love and devotion persisted long after death. And what's really ironic is that pretty much everything I read about Volturine complained about her lack of recognition and canonization within the anarchist movement to the point that I feel like she's kind of famous for not being famous because so many people (laughs) are like obsessed with writing about her. Um, Mm -hmm. And I read a couple of interesting theories about why she isn't as popular as Emma Goldman. And one is that her writing, for the most part, wasn't rooted in like contemporary political events. It was more like just like general thoughts. Um, Mm -hmm. But the Mexican Revolution and the Haymarket riots were the exceptions. But generally, she was just talking about her ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. And then another theory, of course, is that she died young and so there's less to remember her for um
0: which I feel like if funny it's kind of the opposite normally like when like not saying that Emma's not pretty but like Voltrine is like the young pretty one yeah and like even like from other episodes we've done like it's usually the one who like dies younger yeah who gets more attention because it's like you know I don't know, whatever. So no, like, yeah, I, I definitely
1: agree. Um, I think like with them, the thing is that like they're really just famous for their ideas and like their mm-hmm. work. And so it's kind of like the body of work is what's more important. And like like Emma published a bunch of books, also wrote her own autobiography. And when yeah. she came to the U.S. during that like four month period, um, she was like talking about her autobiography So she had a chance Mm -hmm. to, like, publicize it and get people to know about her even more. Yeah. Um,
0: Also, Emma seems, like, kind of, like, the more extreme, you know. She's, like, always getting arrested and, like, having these uh, assassination plots, Mm -hmm. whether she's involved in them or not. But so then I could see why,
1: like, that would obviously stand out more. Yeah. She definitely has her name associated with more, like, big name things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then... Um, in Emma's autobiography, I just want to share a quote. She says, My life as I have lived it owes everything to those who had come into it, stayed long or little, and passed out. Their love, as well as their hate, has gone into making my life worthwhile. Living my life, which is the title of her book, is my tribute and my gratitude to them all. And I just think that's like a really lovely way to like start a book. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think – we can talk about... I can hear your thoughts about this, too. But I think that their sisterhood itself um, is really, like, evident in a lot of ways. It's not just a friendship. It's, like, also kind of, like, a rivalry. And it's also, like, them helping each other. When Emma got got arrested, Volterine kind of, like, you know, like, tried to vindicate her. Is that the word? Mm-hmm. You know? Like, save her reputation. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and then yeah. when... Volterine was sick. Emma became the secretary of the fund for raising money for her. Um, mm-hmm. And their sisterhood itself is really well documented in both letters and essays about each other. Um, and yeah, I think like, as you've kind of noticed, like the anarchist circle is surprisingly big. Um, but even though they were in different cities and from different cultural backgrounds, they were still pretty central figures in each other's like smaller circles within the movement. And they cared mm-hmm. about the same causes and knew all the same people. So
0: yeah. That's, that's yeah. And I feel like also Emma because she wrote a biography about um Voltrine, like mm-hmm. that's also a part of why we have so much information about her. Even if she was less famous when she was alive, Emma kind of like helped her legacy for the future.
1: Yeah, for sure. So it's not like a full biography, it's like um it's like twelve pages introduction to like the works mm-hmm. of Voltrine that she published as Mm -hmm. under mother earth publishing which was mother Mm -hmm. earth was like the magazine she started and then i guess she just made into a publishing company um Mm -hmm. but yeah no she definitely she wrote about like biographical aspects of her life too um yeah
0: yeah which i think is cool because i think like so many times on our show and just like in general the women like when they're like in the same kind of like field and like or if they're like competitive Mm -hmm. they you know will like do things to like kind of bring down the other one but they're like even if they are Mm -hmm. in we're in the same like very political kind of field where there's not a lot of women they're still like helping
1: each other out yeah is cool no for sure and especially since they like explicitly disagreed on like major things but Mm -hmm. they didn't really like from what I've seen, at least, they didn't really, like, tear each other down. They just acknowledged their differences. And yeah. sometimes they did get into, like, arguments, but it wasn't, like – it didn't ever, like, have a lasting effect on their relationship. hmm Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's Emma Goldman and Voltron Um, I think on the Instagram this week, there's so many different ways I could take this. <laughs> um, but I'll definitely – there's another – anarcho-feminist Lucy Parsons who I want to talk about um, on the Instagram so you guys can keep an eye out for her and then just I also want to take a look at what anarcho-feminism looks like today because a lot of people are still really engaging with it I even saw like a talk it's on YouTube um, about anarcho-feminism during COVID-19 which is really specific Mm. (laughs) but yeah people are really still engaging with this cool
0: well thank you Sabrina that was super good and like super interesting
1: <laughs> thanks did you actually think it was interesting I thought it's pretty crazy right the whole story yeah definitely. people getting shot going to jail yeah. randomly becoming yeah, a definitely. midwife in Vienna <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah
0: it definitely has like uh what's that when you have like oh I don't know never mind something about school when you like have a climax and stuff oh but, uh, yeah, yeah it has it has that <laughs> This, this is, is Sistery.
1: Sister. Okay. Okay. Yay! <laughs> okay, okay, bye. Bye!